Welcome to episode 240 of the Women of the Military podcast. This week my guest is Eileen Bjorkman. She is the author of Fly Girls Revolt, the story of the women who kicked open the door to flying combat. She served in the Air Force and she joined the military as an engineer and while at school getting her engineering degree at the Air Force Institute of Technology, AFIT, she learned about a squadron at Holloman Air Force Base where she could sit in the back of aircraft for various test flights. This led her to become a flight test engineer and she served for 33 years in the Air Force and she wanted to write Fly Girls Revolt to highlight her generation and all the things they did to advocate for women to fly in combat aircraft. The policy that allowed women to serve in combat aircraft in the Air Force was changed in 1993. So I really hope you enjoy this interview. I also highly recommend, which you'll hear throughout the interview, her book, Fly Girls Revolt. I thought it was fascinating. I learned a lot and it really just highlights all the work that has to be done behind the scenes to get a policy change and to open the door for women. Before we get started with this week's interview, I want to remind you that you have the opportunity to listen to Women of the Military podcast now on Reese Across America Radio twice a week. That's Fridays at 7 p.m. Eastern and Saturdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. And you can listen on iHeartRadio, the TuneIn app, or Odyssey. And now with that out of the way, let's get started with this week's interview. Welcome to Women of the Military Podcast. I'm excited to have Eileen here. I finished her book, Fly Girls Revolt, and I really enjoyed it, and I learned a lot of history, and so I'm excited to talk to Eileen today and hear more about her story and more about her book and why she wrote it. So welcome to the show. Thank you, Amanda. Thanks for having me on. So let's start with why did you decide to join the military? I always tell people the main reason I joined the military because I was a little bit bored and wasn't sure what to do with my life. <laughs> and I, I think that actually happens to quite a few people. I had graduated from college. Uh, I was up here in the Seattle area. I was working as a computer programmer. It was 1979, you know, going into 1980 timeframe. And I just started thinking, is this all there is? Am I going to just write programs for the rest of my life? And I enjoyed it. I really actually did enjoy my job. I just felt like there was something more out there. And my dad had been in the Air Force, so I was familiar with the the military. And by that point, 1980, women, you know, there was a lot more for women to be able to do in the military. When I first graduated from high school, women were still very restricted in what they could do. But by 1980, a lot of that had changed. So I just went to talk to the recruiter thinking, oh, I'll just talk to him for a few minutes, find out what it's all about. And the next thing I knew, I was filling out all these forms and going to get my physical. And it just seemed like one thing kind of happened after the other. And and I thought, well, I'll give us a few years and see how it worked out. And I really enjoyed it. So I stayed around. Yeah, I like that you were like, ah, I just I felt like there was something more, something I needed to do. And I, I think that's really cool. And it's really cool to hear. I love how you wove part of your story into the book. And so it's cool to hear like your story along with the other history that you gathered. So, but I'm excited to hear even more because there's only like little snippets of the, your story in the book. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. I didn't want my story to dominate the book because the book isn't really about me, but at the same time, I had these unique experiences at that time that I think gave me a somewhat different perspective than a lot of 
people had on the issues that were going on at that time. So I did want to include myself at least somewhat. No, I think it was like the perfect amount. It was like we got to hear from the author and then get all the history and background. And I thought it, it worked really well. So when you joined, did you enlist or did you become an officer? No, I went directly in as an officer. I already had a degree and they were actually short on engineers at that time. I figured I'd go in with my computer science background. They normally would have probably made me a communications officer or something like that, but they were short on engineers. And I had the first two years of engineering in college in terms of calculus, differential equations, that sort of thing. And so they sent me and a bunch of other lieutenants to Air Force Institute of Technology to give us second degrees, second bachelor's degrees in engineering. Uh, so I got a second degree in aero engineering. Cool. That's really cool. Yeah. They, I think they're always short on engineers. <laughs> they pretty much, they kind of come and go. Right? You know, it's like it's like everything in the military, right? We we have too many, and then we get rid of them all, and then we go, oh, no, we don't have enough. <laughs> go back and get a bunch more. So after you graduated from AFIT, where did you go next? So that was my first assignment was at Holloman after that. And I had learned about Holloman while I was going to AFIT. I really didn't know much about the Air Force at that point. My dad had been a pilot. I knew there were pilots and navigators and people who did other things. And, and that was about the extent of my knowledge, especially in terms of what engineers did. And I met a fellow student there who was a first lieutenant. He'd been at Holloman flying in the back end of C-130s and C-141s and even F-4s when he was there testing inertial navigation systems. And I thought, well, that sounds like fun. I wanted to fly and my eyes weren't good enough to be a pilot. That seemed like a, a good way to do it. And so I managed to work an assignment to Holloman there. Yeah, my husband worked at the test group. So I know exactly what you're talking about, 586. He was at the 746. Oh, okay. Yeah, I was there later. So yeah, so, so actually I was there. It wasn't called the 746 the first time I was there. It was, it was just called the Central Inertial Test, Central Inertial Guidance Test Facility SIGTIF. And they still call it, they still call it SIGTIF, but it's now a squadron. And it, when I was there the first time, it was a division. And then later it became a squadron. Yeah. Yeah. So it's the 46 test group. And then there's three, there's like the test track and then the GPS jamming. That was what my husband did. And then the flight, which I think was the 586 or something the like that. The flight testers. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I know I, when I was reading it, it was really fun. Cause I was like, I know exactly what she's talking about. <laughs> yeah. so. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. And so that kind of like had an impact on where the rest of your career went. So like what happened after Holloman? So while I was at Holloman and, and I already knew before I got to Holloman that I was interested in going to the test pilot school because test pilot school doesn't have just pilots. They also train navigators and engineers and nowadays remote pilot operators and various other folks. We even have a, a space test course now. So I, I knew that I wanted to go through test pilot school. At least that's what I thought I wanted to do. And then once I got to Holloman and I started flying and I realized that, yes, this is really, this is, I really like this. I really want to go to test pilot school. So I applied after I had you know, a little bit of experience and, and was accepted in, let's see, 1984 and went to uh, went back to AFIT first, Air Force Institute of Technology, went back there first for a master's degree or the coursework in a master's degree, and then went out to Edwards to go to the test pilot school. And then from there, just went on to various assignments, stayed at Edwards first, and then did various assignments in flight testing and 
getting into staff jobs at the Pentagon and other kinds of experiences throughout the rest of my career. But it, it really did. I, I think Holloman really did set me up for all that because I liked it so much. And it just sort of put me on that 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 path and, and it just kept going. <laughs> yeah. And I think it, test pilot school is still at Edwards. At least it was when my husband yes. was. Yeah. And so that's I think that's a cool history. I love we were because the test group is like connected to test pilot school they would do like roof stomps and like all these different like traditions that come from test pilot school and so (laughs) i think they have a lot of cool history and just an interesting little like community around the work that they get to do and so that yeah Yeah, it's it's a very cool place it's very great experience to uh, to have I'm, i'm it's something i'm really glad i did yeah so you so in 1984 and well now i got is that when you graduated from test pilot school did i get my dates messed up so i graduated in 86. so i I went to AFID in 84 got to test pilot school in 85 and graduated in 86. and so you got an opportunity as a test pilot to do some things that women weren't able to do because combat exclusion prevented women from flying in combat aircraft at the time Yes, that's correct. So yes, so so I was a, a flight test engineer and uh, not not a test pilot. So, yeah. But uh, so I, I was flying in the back seat of airplanes. But that's correct. At that time, women were not allowed to fly in aircraft that engaged uh, the enemy in combat. And so the airplanes that we were flying in at Edwards, though, even though they were fighter airplanes like F4s and F16s. We, they were test airplanes. We weren't engaging the enemy in combat. And so I was allowed to fly in the backseat of those, those airplanes. And, and I wasn't the only woman. There were, there were a few of us. There weren't a lot of us, but there were a few of us at the time that were flying in the back of F4s, F16s, F15s. And I think one of the things that you talked about in the book that I thought was really interesting and related a lot to my story of being, I was in combat before the po- the combat exclusion was lifted was how many studies were done like if women could be in p- combat aircraft and you were out there you know you weren't in combat but you were in the aircraft you were in the back seat you were doing your job and you were able to do it even though you were a woman but then they continually asked congress to do study after study to see if it was possible. And I was like, reading your book was kind of like a light bulb moment because there's so many studies, like can women be in combat? And I'm like, we were on the front lines during the war and nobody said, can you be here? They just said, go. And so I think that was really interesting. Right, right. It seemed like when I was in, in the 1980s, especially, there was just study after study after study about how you use women in the military. Are they hurting readiness? Are they doing this? And like you said, can they do... Can they can they go into combat and and it seemed like every study that came back was always very positive about women and and yet every time they got that answer it's like well that's not the answer we wanted let's go do another study right <laughs> yeah no that i mean it's the same thing with women in combat on the ground it was the same sort of like wait that's not what, what the study results we wanted let's do another study maybe it'll be different this time and it's like no yeah. <laughs> you don't understand <laughs> that's right. so i thought I thought that was really interesting because it made me less resentful with all the studies that I saw happening, like while I was overseas, you know, attached to an infantry unit that I couldn't serve in. But then I'm reading your book and learning about 
the Gulf War and then like the studies that came after the Gulf War happened and you're like, we we just did this for real. Like, do we need a study when we actually did, you know, so can you talk a little bit about like what happened with the Gulf War and from your research? Because I know I know you were in and I know that you didn't deploy, but you were still involved in yeah. So, yeah. So I didn't deploy. I mean, it was a very short war. It was you know, over, over pretty quick. And, but I watched everything that was going on and I watched all the women de- deploying and going over there. I knew people who were, were going over there and it became obvious pretty quickly from watching TV every day and watching what was going on that women were involved in every aspect of that war, except for you know, flying downtown and dropping bombs in downtown Baghdad and actually you know, shooting airplanes out of the sky. I mean, they were involved in all of the support operations that, that went that went on in that war. And because it was a logistics war, because it required so much stuff to go over in such a short amount of time, it involved a lot of women aviators because that's where they were. They were in the airlift squadrons. They were in the refueling squadrons. And so they were called on very heavily. And also a lot of women by that point were in the reserves, had, had either joined the reserves to start with or had gotten out of active duty and joined the reserves and the reserves were called up. And so you saw people going off to war, you, you not just the not just the scenes that you see on TV of people you don't know, but people in their towns were seeing the reserve units nearby activating and their neighbors were going off to war and they were seeing women going off to war. And and they saw, you know, a handful of women unfortunately get killed. There were two women taken POW and people just saw that this was normal and that the military required women to be that, that they were part of the team and they requ- they were required to be there for the operation. I think the Gulf War more than anything really helped to normalize women in the military and make people realize that you know, the military can't function without them anymore. And then that was what led people to say, well, they're already being shot at. Why do we say that we're that they're not allowed in combat when we know they're being exposed to hostile fire? This just doesn't make any sense. And there were a lot of people who had been building up to that all along. The Persian Gulf War, I think if it hadn't happened, the door still would have opened for women to fly in combat. It would have just taken a little longer. But I think we were already moving in that direction. And then the Persian Gulf War was kind of the triggering event that the stars all aligned there and and allowed the door to finally swing open, even though it kind of swung open slowly, right? They, they, they nudged the door open and then it still took a couple more years before it actually happened. Yeah, I mean, the war happened in 91 and then the law wasn't passed until 93. And it was interesting, like, seeing, like, you did such a good job of documenting, like, all the moving pieces that were happening behind the scenes to make it happen, the opposition, the people who are for it, and all the different things that were going on. And it was just fascinating to learn about all that history and just to see how it changed. And I think like women being in combat aircraft really opened the door for women to be on the ground in combat. And so I think those two stories are like so interconnected and just like the military didn't do a very good PR campaign of highlighting what women had done, which is why I love your book so much to open the door for women to be in combat aircraft. The same thing can be said with women being in, allowed to be in combat now combat units. And they didn't talk about what happened. It's like, oh, this is a new idea. And I'm like, no, it's not. And so 
Yeah, so it was really interesting. Right, right. Almost from the beginning in Afghanistan, you had women in, you know, in 2001, 2002, starting to embed in those combat units. And so, yeah, it, it's, it's a very similar story, I'm sure, on the, on the ground side. And, and I followed some of that in the papers and everything, but I'm sure there's a lot of behind the scenes kinds of things that you know, I wasn't tracking. So, and, and uh, yeah, that's a similar thing that happened with this. And, and um, yeah, and so the, the law actually, and the, so the law actually got repealed in 1991, but then it took two more years because of the, because they put this, they put the, they put in into the law they said, okay, we're repealing the law, but we're also going to put into there that we have to do another study, right? <laughs> so, <yeah>. Another <laughs> study. Yeah, so we, we don't really want to do this, so we're going to do another study. We're going to delay a little bit longer, and, and so, yeah, but, but then it finally, you know, again, the cooler heads finally prevailed. So. Yeah, and I thought it was really interesting because obviously I know who Jeannie Levitt is, the first woman to serve as a fighter pilot, but you included her story before which i hadn't ever heard before so can you tell that story because i think it's so cool and i don't think enough people know what happened i just was like oh she must have just been in the right place right time but she actually advocated for herself so can you share yes that she story? did so yeah so a little bit of it was right right place at the right time but she also she knew when she went to pilot training that the law had been lifted so she went to pilot training I think in 92, uh, 91 or 92. Anyway, so the law had been lifted. She knew that, but she also knew that this study was still going on. The policy hadn't been lifted yet, but she was the number one pilot in her pilot training class. And because of the way they did the aircraft selection, she got to go first in terms of saying which airplane that she wanted. Well, because she was the top pilot in her class, she was qualified to fly fighters and she normally would have been able to pick an F-15E, which was what she wanted. She could have picked any fighter airplane, F-16, A-10, anything that, that she wanted if it was available. And there was an F-15E available. And so they, on the night when they were all sitting around on a conference call, and nowadays you'd probably do it on Zoom. <laughs> in those <laughs> days, they had like a big conference call and they would go around and and in order of uh, you know how they graduated in their class, they would get to say which airplane they wanted. And so she came on the phone and said, I'll take the F-15E. And the colonel who's running the process on the other end, he, he had actually written, he knew this was gonna happen. He had written out on a piece of paper, you know, current policy prohibits women from flying combat aircraft, please make another choice or something like that. Yes, yeah, something to that effect. And so she took the, she said she'd take a, a um, KC-10, a tanker airplane to March. So that was just a few months before the policy actually changed. Of course, nobody knew it was going to change, but rather than send her to March, the Air Force, they knew the policy was probably going to change. So they they actually told her not to go to March and they started training her as a T-38 instructor pilot instead, figuring that if she was T-38 instructor, then when the policy changed, it would be easy to move her over to become a fighter pilot because that's a, that was a common path years ago that pilots would be T-38 instructor pilots or T-38 T-37, and then they would move into a fighter airplane. So anyway, so the policy got lifted uh, the end of April of 1993, so just a few months later. And then she, along with two other women, were announced as the first three women fighter pilots on that same day that the policy was lifted. Yeah, I mean, it's just cool to hear more about the stories of women because 
I told someone earlier today, I was like, I'm an expert, but there's still stuff that I don't know because there's just so much history and there's so many moving pieces. And I'm just always amazed that there's more to learn because I feel like I've learned so much in the past five years since starting the podcast. And then I am like, and there's still more history (laughs) to discover. Is there anything else from your career in the Air Force that you wanted to talk about? And then we can talk a little bit more about why you wrote the book and can't really think of anything. I mean, I had, you know, I I would say a lot of my experiences were similar to the same experiences that other women had. I I never had anything like really, really traumatic happen to me, but I also, there was always, I shouldn't say always, but there were times where there was this undercurrent of, you know, sexual harassment, uh, some, you know, people not being fully accepting those sorts of things. Um, So, you know, but I always felt most for the most part, I felt like I was considered part of the team. I felt like I was able to get along with the guys and, and they, they truly accepted me as part of the team. And I, I think some of that was because I was not working in an operational assignment because I was in this test world. And I just think there's a different mentality in that, that world. Even though most of the people that come into that world, especially on the pilot side, have operational experience, there's just a different attitude. It's it's much more at least and, and and I think things have changed now. But you know, back in the eighties, I think there was a more accepting attitude because they were more interested in your brain and what you brought to the table <laughs> as opposed to as opposed to what gender you were. Um, so I think in some ways maybe I had a little bit more of an accepting experience than perhaps other women did. And so that's why I'd really like to see other women write their books, is write their experiences. Because I'd really like to know you know, what, what was it like really to be the first woman, you know, C-130, C-130 pilot, for example, you know, that I think that would be a really interesting and different experience than, than what I had. And, and I tried to write about some of the women's experiences, but I'd rather have them write their own experiences. I mean, I tried to capture some of that and what they went through, but I think it would be much more interesting if they were able to tell their own stories. Yeah. I recently read Flying in the Face of Fear by Kim Campbell, and she's a A-10 fighter pilot, and I really liked how her book was a mix of leadership and memoir, where she told a lot of stories about her experience, and it gave me a different perspective of being a fighter pilot, because I got to hear her experience and learn different stories, and it just, I really enjoyed it, and I love when women tell stories about their careers because I mean I guess I have a podcast about it and I keep going with more stories so obviously I find it interesting so I I'm in the same boat I think that more women should share their stories and I'm always trying to read books by women veteran authors because there's so many good stories out there and so much history and just things and even if you don't write your story and you write fiction I've read fiction and other books by women veterans I'm always trying to read their stories yeah yeah because a lot of times they they kind of fictionalize certain things that happen to them in those books that can be very interesting yeah Yeah. so why did you decide to write fly girls revolt you were talking before I hit record that this is your third book and you said that it was kind of special because of like how it is it's different than your past two books so why did you decide to write it well some of it came about because several people had asked me about writing a memoir and I just wasn't sure that my own story is 
that interesting. <laughs> There's certainly aspects of it uh, that could be a memoir, but I thought the whole generation that I was in, there was a story there that hadn't been told. There's a lot of books that have been written about the WASP, the women, women's Air Force service pilots in, from, uh, or women Air Force service pilots from World War II. There are a lot of the current women, current fighter pilots or younger fighter pilots have, have, have written memoirs about their experiences, not just fighter pilots, but the combat pilots, uh, uh, women helicopter pilots, you know, that sort of thing. But there's a dearth of books about my generation and it was my generation of women that really made that final push to kick open the door so that the younger women could be there. And we stood on the shoulders of the women who came before us. And so I felt like there was this story there that started in World War II that went up through 1993. And of course, it, it's continuing to go. But I felt like there was, a, you know, that there was this story there that most people didn't know about. And, and bits and pieces of it had been talked about over the years. And like the first women who went through pilot training in the 70s, they got a lot of attention. And then occasionally you'd see an article about, oh, so-and-so's, you know, the first woman to do this or the first woman to do that. And, and then there was all of a sudden women were flying in combat. <laughs> and, and it seemed like the, the accomplishments of the women that made all of that happen had kind of gotten forgot about, for, forgotten about. And so that was that was the real my real reason for wanting to write the book was first of all, I think it's a great story, but then secondly is trying to highlight the accomplishments of, of the women of my generation and, and how they contributed to the, to the current fight, even though they never got in that fight themselves, they, they made that contribution to open the door. Yeah. Reading your book, it really made me want to write a book or find someone to write a book about women, about combat exclusion being lifted because I've heard women's, say they were like well i was the first woman to be in combat and i was like no you weren't because i was in combat before you were and i know i wasn't the first and like there's all these like you know the female engagement teams some people know about that but there's like so much other stories and history that happen within all the different branches and the different career fields that people don't know about and so i feel like there's the story there and so I was like this is such a great story because it is it's such a good story and it's so much history that most people don't know about and it really helps to shine the light on all the work that had to happen for women to be able to become pi fighter pilots and I think like you said the women before us you know set the they they broke barriers so that we could break more barriers and we just, you know, it all works together and support each other and promote each other. And I think it's, it's really cool. Yeah. I think there is a parallel book to be written on the, on the army side, the, the army and Marine Corps, the ground side, if you will, that starts in world war two also with the women who served during world war two and then Korea, Vietnam, and in the same thing, it's a, it's a little bit more drawn out story, but I think it's a very similar path. Yeah, there's so many. Yeah, there's so many stories. I know that was one of the questions I was thinking because I was like, how did you figure out where to start the book? <laughs> yeah, that was hard. <laughs> you could just keep going back, going back. Right, right. You can. And 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 I initially did start to go all the way back, right? Because so, I actually had some books that were written about women in combat. And a lot of them do start way back, right? They'll even go back to you know, ancient Greece. And, and, and then and a lot of them maybe don't start quite that far back because they start, okay, it's just the United States. So, but they even start like back in the 
a revolutionary war and then some start in the civil war and so i i, I considered that and then you ha actually had some women who served during world war one that were served more in a reserve capacity and they weren't really made permanent and and so i kind of looked at all of that and i only had I think I had 80 or 85,000 words to work with. So that's some of how you decide what you're going to include is just how many words you have. <laughs> if, if I had 150,000 words, well, first of all, I don't know that I want to write a book that long, but you know, I may, may have gone back and included that stuff. But I just finally decided that the real starting point was World War II, because first of all, it was the first time that women had served in a kind of a regular capacity, if you will. And before there were, it was always, yeah, we're just going to bring some women in and then we're going to get rid of them at the end of the war. And that was actually really the, the original plan during World War II was that the women were all going to go away at the end of the war. But they brought in so many more women and they served in so many different roles and they served overseas. And it was just, I felt like that was sort of the seminal moment that, that really started everything. And plus women were so involved in the war on the home front as well. And I don't really talk about that in the book, but there was that aspect as well that you, know, you had women, the Rosie, the Riveters, women building airplanes, women in very, very involved as opposed to World War One, which was it was our entry was so late into World War One that we really we were only actually in the war for a couple of years, right? not even that long, I don't think. And so there just wasn't as much there. So that's that, that was some of my reasoning for why I, I started where I did. So, and, and there were also, you know, another thing that people write about is, is there were nurse corps established before World War II. And so the other thing is, you know, this was the first time that women were serving in the regular army in, as, as opposed to being in this nursing corps, which was a little bit separate. So there's probably a whole other stories to be written about nursing corps and all that. But again, I, I wanted to, that's part of the problem is, it's not a problem, but that's one of the things you have to deal with as a writer is figuring out, you know, what you're going to put in, what are all those really interesting things that happen that you'd love to include, but they're just not going to, not going to fit into the narrative. So. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I, it makes so much sense. There's so much history and like different ways you could go and, how you thread that timeline to make sure that your reader doesn't get lost and confused and introducing too many characters. Yeah. I thought, I thought you did a great job and I learned so much and I, I thought I knew a lot and I learned even more. So it was really great to hear. I don't think I actually have said, I, I'm staring at the title right in front of me, but I don't think we've said it on the podcast. So if you're listening to the audio podcast and not watching the live video, the book is called Fly Girls Revolt. And so you can get it, you can get it wherever books are sold, right? Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. yeah, it's distributed by Simon & Schuster. If you go to their page, they have links to various places you can buy it. Also, if you go to my website, EileenBjorkman.com. I have links to several places where you can buy it, but it's all the standard places. Buy it from your favorite independent bookstore or buy it from Amazon, whatever, <laughs> wherever you normally buy books. And the link to your website is in the show notes so that people can find it easily. And so I didn't want to have to direct people on where to go to buy it. So I knew yeah. that your link would be the best place to make it so that people can find it easily. And so I am just really grateful for you writing this book. I think it's a piece of history that people need to hear. And so I'm really, 
I loved getting a chance to read it and I'm really excited I got to talk to you and hear a bit a little bit about your story. So I always like to end my interviews with what advice would you give to the next generation of young women who are considering military service? First, I would say that we need you. We need everybody. We need every American who's qualified to go into the military to at least think about it. We, as a country, we can't afford to not use all of the talents that are available to us. So, so that would be the first thing is at least please think about going into the military. It's not for everybody, but it's a great, I think it's a great career. It's, it's very, it's very rewarding. It can be very stressful at times. Uh, sometimes things don't always go quite the way you think they're going to. And, but the biggest thing is you are going to be stretched in the military in ways that you aren't in civilian life. You are going to do things that you don't think you can do. And one of the things the military is really good about is taking people and, and, and really stretching them and asking them to do things that they don't think are possible and yet they get them done anyway. I, I remember when I first showed up at, at officer training school, and I, I talk about this a little bit in the book, I showed up and, and I found out that I was going to have to march people around as, as an officer. That's one of the things you have to do. And I was I thought, there's no way I can do this. I'm going to wash out. <laughs> well, not only did I do it, I did really well at it. And and that was such a confidence builder for me. I, I, I think before I joined the military, I lacked a lot of confidence in how good I was and what I could actually accomplish. And the military, if nothing else, they showed me that I could do so much more than I thought I was capable of doing. And then just being able to make that contribution to your to your country. And, and be part of the team. That, that, I think, was the biggest thing for me, is I always wanted to be part of the team. It wasn't about me. It was about my team and what I could do to make my team better. And, and so be part of the team, and you'll be accepted as part of the team. Such great advice. Thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast. And if you're listening, go out and get a copy of Fly Girls Revolt. You will not regret it. It's so good. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening to this week's interview. I'm really thankful that you took the time to listen to this episode, and I wanted to tell you about two resources that may help you in your journey of military service. And so the first is my book, A Girl's Guide to Military Service. It's meant to help you answer all your questions about military life and give you a firm foundation for the start of your career. And if you're looking for mentorship or want to be a mentor, please check out the Women of the Military Mentorship Program. You can sign up to be a mentee or a mentor. Thanks so much for listening and have a great week.